welcome to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the FT. I'm Grizz, I'm a commissioning editor on the Arts Desk here. And I'm Al, the food and drink editor. In this episode, Al speaks to the actor Chiwetel Ejiofor about the movie The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which he directs and stars in, as well as Hashtag Me Too and the current state of the industry. And later we'll be talking with a contributor to a new collection of essays titled It's Not About the Burqa, a new collection of writing from Muslim women on faith, feminism, sexuality and race. So, Grace, what have you been doing since our last episode? So having slagged off Netflix quite roundly two episodes ago, I've actually spent most of the last couple of weeks watching Netflix, watching a programme called Russian Doll, which is totally brilliant. Yeah, me too. You just finished it? Yeah, I just finished it last night. The ending is very satisfying, isn't it? Yes, when I finally understood what was going on after my (laughs) wife had explained it to me. It is extremely satisfying. So if you haven't seen it, Russian Doll is a show written and created and starring Natasha Lyonne, which is basically about getting stuck in a time loop, finding yourself in the bathroom at the same party again and again and again. And each time she dies and then goes back to the beginning again, a bit like dying in a computer game and going back to the start. Or Groundhog Day. It has been compared to Groundhog Day and I can see those similarities, although I do think it's kind of darker and very distinctive, very different from anything which has been on TV in a while, I think. I mean, the episodes are kind of short and sharp and punchy for a start, so there's nothing baggy about this. It's 25 minutes. Each one introduces something new. It's only eight episodes and it has a very satisfying kind of complete conclusion. There's nothing left dangling. Well... Another good reason why you shouldn't have been slagging Netflix in the way that you did is The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, the new movie by Juetel Ejiofor, which is being released as we record. We're very current, aren't we? We we are. <laughs> what is the phrase? We are on the curve, ahead of the curve. We're not really ahead of the curve. We are the curve. I think saying phrases like <laughs> we're on the curve probably means that you're behind the curve. <laughs> behind the curve. Anyway, uh, tell me about Chiratel Ejiofor, I hear that you guys go way back. No, sadly we don't. I mean, he has loomed in my life and I have been thinking about Chewy for um, many years, but I don't think he's been thinking about me. Um, <laughs> so why have you been thinking about him? Well, we went to the same drama school in London and he was there a little bit before me. And when I turned up, I would perform on stage acting my socks off and the director would say do it again but do it like chewy (laughs) that is actually a good impression of the director he was obviously this great star there and he i think he managed to complete his first year but not beyond that because after three months he was swept off his feet by steven spielberg and put into a movie amistad and then i think you know after you get swept off your feet by someone like spielberg You don't really have to go back to drama school. Um, So, yes, I've been thinking about that. And our lives have diverged a little bit since then. Considerably. Yes. So where might I have seen Chiwetel before? He's a Nigerian-English actor, star of great movies like Dirty Pretty Things, Kinky Boots. He plays Carl Mordo in the Marvel comic Doctor Strange. And most obviously, he's the star of 12 Years a Slave. He plays Solomon Northup. And so why are we talking to him now? Because he's just made his directorial debut with the movie The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. 
How does it feel, William? I never went to secondary school. Make us proud. Hey, <laughs> looking sharp, eh? You too, man. <laughs> Kachukolo is not the wealthiest school in the district, but it's down to each one of you to decide your own level of commitment. Commitment! It's a beautiful film set in Malawi. It's a true story about a village that is facing drought and famine. At the heart of the movie is this boy who is expelled from his school because his family can't afford to pay the fees anymore. But he still keeps on sneaking back into the school library, reading science books, and he sets out to try and save his whole village by building a wind turbine. It's a bomb. Can you fix it? Maybe. Mr. Kachibunda, when you turn the wheel on your bike, the light shines. How? It's magnets. At the heart of this story is the relationship between him and his father, who's played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, and it's deeply moving. It's also stunningly beautiful just to look at. It's set against this vast Malawi landscape. It's moving uplifting. I think you should watch it. Great. It's also, from a personal point of view, quite a relief to see a film after you have arranged an interview with a big Hollywood star and for that film to turn out not to be a complete dog. So that's nice as well. So what did you start off by asking him? Well, we didn't get straight into the movie. Instead, we took a little trip down memory lane. Cool, we can start. Um, yeah. Chiwetel Ejiofor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Ah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So we went to the same drama school. Ah. Unlike you, I managed to finish the course. <laughs> right. Um, but I wasn't... <laughs> how was it? How was, what happens in the... In the well, you graduate, you learn how to be an actor, and then you Good. go on to become a was financial times journalist. Um, but I wasn't swept off by Steven Spielberg like you were. Your career is very eclectic. Big Marvel comic movies, you know, you've played Solomon Northrup, 12 Years a Slave, Othello to great critical acclaim on stage. You're about to play Scar in The Lion King, Aqua in Dirty Pretty Things. Is it the same process to get into each of these characters or is it a wildly different thing? No, it's it's different. It is always different. And that's, well, I suppose it's that kind of, in a way, a meta thing. You know, you spend a little bit of time working out how you're going to actually go about the process of uh, with a certain character of trying to get into that character um what sort of things would you do though well what i would probably think about is whether the route into a character is a kind of physical route for example you know when i was doing a film called red belt with uh, david mamet a few years ago and with 12 years a slave as well you know the beginning point for me was always in the physical you know with red belt this the guy was a brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner so that was what I wanted to know more than anything else, really, at the beginning part of doing any preparation. I just wanted to know, well, what does that feel like? You know, and with 12 So you became a master of jiu-jitsu? I did. If you attack me in the correct sequence of moves, I am still a master of jiu-jitsu. <laughs> I have that already <laughs> planned. Um, with 12 Years a Slave, you know, the same sort of idea that you kind of, that going into some of that kind of physicality. Uh, being in Louisiana and what, feeling the heat and and that being a way of getting into the kind of psychological area that um, that the character might be um, 
you know, would explore and then building other things around that. With your deepest roles, how much of yourself are you bringing to the role? Well, that is an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't know. How personal is it? I think it has to be very personal in the end. You know, I think that that is part of the the journey is to make it part of you. I think that when you kind of, you when you match that in a kind of singularity, that's when you have kind of real access to a role. That's when you can sort of move one way or move another way and it still seems to work because it is kind of part of you. You're sort of, you're kind of locked. The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, this is your directorial debut. Yeah. Of all the stories in the world, why this one? Well, um, I read the book, you know, almost 10 years ago when it came out in 2009, and I was absolutely stunned by it, you know. By William Story, really, by William Kamkwamba's story, who as a... As a um, as a 13-year-old boy in Malawi, you know, was in this sort of circumstance with his family and his community where, due to a flooding and uh, and and a, and a drought, a sort of double punch. And it's a true story. And it's a true story, yeah. This happened. And so he was taken out of school. You know, secondary school isn't, isn't free in Malawi. He was taken out of school as a result of this. And the sort of community was just sort of bracing for the worst. And he started sneaking into school. And um, he snuck into the school library and... He found a book, an American textbook, with a picture of a windmill on the front of it. The book's called Using Energy. And uh, and he started to use the scraps that he could find and any junk he could find and using this book and started to try to build a wind turbine. Well, I watched it last night and it's a beautiful sort of epic, sort of shot on an epic scale. It's a family drama, perhaps more than anything. Um, I think it's... I think it's a really stunning piece of work. Thank you. And you direct, and you're in this film as well. And, you know, it's not a small part. You're in most of the scenes. Is it easy to direct yourself? Well, they didn't go through this in the third year of... Uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> well, no. Maybe maybe they did, and that's why I am a journalist. Um, no, the it was probably the more complicated aspect of it for me you know i didn't know what that was going to feel like or be like on the in the days of shooting so you shoot a scene and then then you look back and think oh i nailed it or or maybe not maybe i'll do it a different way is that how it works or does someone say listen actually chewy you've you kind of you've got to do something completely different <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, it was down to me, largely, you know, what I felt about the scene. But I feel like there's a lot that you can understand about a scene from inside the scene. Uh, it's very different, but I feel you gauge it and understand it as accurately. I've always felt, as an actor, when I've played a scene that I felt has worked in the moment of playing the scene, invariably that's the take that has been the one that everybody has been the most excited about. Do you think it's terrifying for your co-stars to act alongside the person who's made the film and is a big star? Yeah, I think that there's that sense maybe when somebody's looking at you, when I'm looking at somebody, that am I looking at somebody and I'm judging their performance or am I in the scene and looking at them and so on? And yes, I was, so if you were looking angry and upset in the scene, <laughs> yeah, that could yeah. mean many things. Well, I was very clear with everybody, you know, that I, you know, that I, that it's a totally collaborative and open experience and that's what it and that's what it should be and that's what it should feel like. Was it a wise choice to choose a film in which all the actors would have to learn a new language? Well, that was a choice that came out of a, a separate need, you know, that um, that it became kind of inevitable that that was going to that that was going to happen at some point. Are you brilliant at this language? I am not. No. The uh... on screen, <laughs> do you think uh do you sound native? 
Yes. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, we did a lot of work and a lot of work with people from Malawi. You know, I started months before we shot the film to start working on Chichiwa, which is the language of, mm-hmm. uh, of Malawi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my focus was very much on the line, you know, after a while, after sort of learning sort of, sort of basic broad scopes of the language, was to get into what I was actually going to say, you know, which is why I'm not fluent. I couldn't go to Malawi today and speak, uh, you know, fluent Chichiwa. But in terms of of the uh, the chihuahua that is spoken that is what we really kind of focused on and 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 worked on yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about the industry in general we live in the age of Oscar so white and me too you've moved back to london now um, is that because la was so toxic i mean i think i always had an interesting relationship with la there was a toxicity to los angeles i think anybody who'd spent any sort of time there would agree with that because it is so completely industry-based, there's not a lot of room to talk and think about other things. And so everybody's sort of talking about films a lot. And although that can be very, very enjoyable at times, I just think that over a period of time, uh, when I spent long periods of time in L.A., it just sort of becomes a quite a sort of narrow conversation. You and know? everyone being seethingly jealous of each other. Well, I mean, that certainly happens, but that, you know, we're not a million miles from that in the UK all the time. So um, you've been around Hollywood for you know, two decades. Were you aware of, of the Harvey Weinstein stuff and all of that kind of stuff? Was that just common knowledge? Well, I mean, I knew Harvey because, of course, he made two films that I made. And I, I didn't know really what was... I mean, obviously, this, this stuff was characterized by it being private. I mean, that was a sort of the sort of nature of it. The but, but people did seem to know. I mean, most people have said, oh, I didn't know anything. But then a lot of people have said, well, everyone knew it all the time. Well, I mean, I can only speak for myself that Harvey did not pull me aside and say, hey, this is what I'm up to, you know. And I... and I. If so he I, had, what would he have done? If he'd pulled me aside and said, this is what I'm up yeah, to? Yeah, if he'd boasted about it over a beer. It depends. I'm sure he would have characterised it very differently. And that's been part of why this has been a very educational time he would have characterized it and a lot of people have characterized it in a certain way as in people wanting things from him and all of these sorts of things i think what shocked me and what i think a lot of people discovered in that time was this idea of coercion this idea of like leaning on people this idea of a kind of predatory nature which wasn't simple in a way you know just was absolutely kind of nefarious and angry and hateful and i think that that element is what is so surprising and upsetting and that kind of lack of kind of moral identity or ethical identity yes is part of was is part of hollywood was part of hollywood and people were aware of that and you could either join in that stuff or you could move away from it do you feel that the culture is now improving well i'm not there and i and 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 one of the things that i but it's not just hollywood i mean this presumably is in the british film industry as well or had been well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if... It, I mean, I, I mean, it seems we... to be everywhere. It's in Parliament. It's in... I'm the food and drink editor. It's in It's in kitchens. It's everywhere. Um, yeah, but, I mean, we have to be careful with what we're actually describing because okay. there's, there is... You know, we've just been having a conversation about Harvey Weinstein and then and then now we're talking about sexual harassment, which mm-hmm. is slightly different. I mean, you know, there mm-hmm. is there are distinctions in all of those things. No, but it does seem know? to be part of... Or at least the uncovering of it is part of a broader movement. But equally, you know, that there are behaviours that are registered as 
extreme behaviors and whether those kinds of behaviors or the kinds of thinking, the modes of thinking that allow those kind of behaviors, whether they change that quickly or whether that that takes a kind of generational shift, I don't know. I mean, it feels like that's one of the things that we will continue to discover. I think, you know, people can be incredibly manipulative, especially if they have something that they have that other people want. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily uh, a straightforward and very sort of simple, aggressive nature or act. It can be a whole sort of pervasive social dynamic that can be um, incredibly nefarious, you know. So I don't know if things change that quickly. I think that what has been revealed is this real toxic cancer, you know, and uh, I don't know if there's a kind of magic cure-all to that kind of way of thinking. Um, From an acting point of view, you're still young, but you have still had 20 years of acting behind you. If you could talk to your 19-year-old self before you got poached by Steven Spielberg, what would you say, what advice would you give him? Well, you know, I think that at that age and and through my 20s, you know, I, I feel like everything was so important which is a weird thing to say in a way because in a way it is important that you kind of get yourself out there that you make you do the work and every part you, could be your last uh, or yeah or could set you on the road to this you know but at the same time I feel like that some of the kind of stress and the, the sort of tension that was involved in that time for me was sort of so full that I would probably advise um just a relaxing of that that somehow some of these things a lot of things can be in your control but you know what you learn over a period of time is that a lot of things aren't in your control a lot of decisions are made completely outside of anything that you could affect you know that it's important to be prepared it's important to work hard it's important to try and push for the things that you can achieve but at the same time you're not controlling everything and that you have to release a lot of this to what will happen you know and what sort of will be and that and you must have an awful lot more control now than you did then oh sure yeah um what is the great sort of burning ambition you'd like to fulfill in the next 10 years say there's loads of things that i want to that i want to try there's loads of things that i feel could be um exciting or interesting there are things there are there are whole avenues that i haven't explored on stage for example that i think could be interesting to to try and obviously you know having made a film now that opens up a whole host of things that maybe i can try to do there so there's a lot to try and sort of um achieve but um Seeing how that plays out and how that kind of works out is part of the sort of journey. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Tamal, did you enjoy that? I felt like I was playing chess with a sort of grandmaster, which is maybe not a game that I was destined to win. I mean, he turned up with a with a huge entourage, most of whom I made stay in the lobby. Um, I felt like I was talking to a man who has spent more than 20 years building an extremely successful career, and he was not about to chuck it all away with a few indiscreet confessions on a podcast. Do you think that's sort of typical of actors, though, in that they can be quite guarded in interviews? No, I think lots of actors seem guarded, just because they don't have anything to say. So you imagine that they've got some amazing hinterland when in fact it's just empty space. 
I think many actors are also private for extremely good reasons that they are frequently attacked by the press, by critics on social media. And their daily work involves giving so much of themselves personally, you know, even more than a food and drink editor um, might, that they are inherently exposed and vulnerable. And I think, therefore, they need to sort of hold on to a bit of a bit of themselves that, you know, we can't all just sort of pick over and, and criticise and have a, have a view on. You know, just the very physical act of standing on a stage in front of a thousand people is terrifying. You know, you think you know, every single person there is, is judging whether you're any good or not. And at the end, they are asked to clap or not. And that is a terrifying, but also obviously very exhilarating position to be in. Okay, so now in the FT London studio, we're joined by writer Salma Hydrani, whose essay, Eight Notifications, appears in It's Not About the Burqa, a new collection of writing from Muslim women on faith, feminism, sexuality and race. Salma, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. It's good to be here. So this book we've both read and loved. Can you tell us a bit about the, the impetus for it? What was the thinking behind, behind it in the first place? Well, I feel like Muslim women's voices have been hijacked for years, particularly post 9 11 7 7. And whenever kind of news stories come up about them, we never ever hear anything from their perspective. And seeing a collection like this is, is quite landmark, really. It kind of puts the onus on us. We can speak about our own lived experiences, what it's like growing up in Britain, what it's like to have our voices hijacked. So this is about not being spoken about as Muslim women, but having the platform to speak. Exactly. It's exactly that. It's Muslim women speaking on our own terms without it being kind of curtailed or whitewashed in a sense almost as well. Your essay, Mm. can you say a little bit about that? So my essay was called Eight Notifications and it charts the challenges I faced being a Muslim journalist in a post-Brexit climate and my experiences online. I think it's interesting being a journalist in a kind of very difficult, socio-politically turbulent time, and I've kind of immortalised that in the in my essay. It opens with you describing how you're scared of your phone. Yeah, absolutely. So I joined a newsroom, a youth culture newsroom, in the summer of 2016. It was about two weeks after Brexit, so obviously there was quite a lot of post-Brexit racism. And any time I wrote anything on faith, particularly with a gendered aspect of Islam... Straight away, there would be people messaging me on Twitter, sending some kind of abuse, maybe hunting me down on Facebook, which is what they often did. So it became quite difficult because I felt like there was a need for me to kind of speak for for Muslim women, but also to kind of present our own experiences and our own opinions unfiltered. But with that came a side dish of, oh dear, what's the reaction to this going to be? And I felt like it escalated that summer. And then I was sent to a UKIP conference. So you were sent to a UKIP conference yeah. after the vote, after the referendum yeah, had happened? after the vote. It was in September 2016. What was that like? Um, absolutely vile. <laughs> it was vile. I've never seen anything like it. It's, was Farage there? He wasn't. It was because it was the hustings. It was the London hustings. And he was seen as this kind of saviour of Britain, really. That's how they essentially described him. And 
it was quite reverent tones. It was very cult-like, actually. Um, it was really uncomfortable at the time, but afterwards I thought it was quite humorous. But then I thought about it retrospectively when I was writing the essay, and I knew that I'd get a good story out of there because I was the only Muslim in the room. But it's also... I feel like a lot of women of colour and Muslim women can also be put in quite difficult positions to get the best story because they know they will because their presence is provocative just in just and being of there. It, just mm. in and of itself. In the essay, you, you talk about feeling, you know, looking for, you know, easy exits and things yeah. like that. You, you you must have felt physically under some threat yeah. in order to do that. Yeah. One of the leadership candidates, Lisa Duffy, she'd been on a kind of one-woman rampage that entire summer talking about how Muslim women were in need of saving. And I'd heard this all summer, this idea of freedom, this idea of saving, and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to just tackle her myself. Are you personally religious or are you just interested in faith in general? No, I am. And I think that informs a huge part of my work because... I have that platform to be able to change perceptions. It does inform my work, absolutely. One of your earliest pieces was about the first halal sex shop. Yeah. And this provoked a reaction on social media as well. And you talk about, you, know, you said you couldn't quite believe that your article could elicit you know, that much outrage mm. from strangers. Why do you think a piece like that does elicit that kind of outrage? When you kind of Muslim and Islam and Muslim identity in particular is kind of conflated with anti-Britishness, a kind of angry kind of rhetoric for years, this idea that they can have an active sex life, that they enjoy sex, that they need sex, that they maybe go online and check what's a better vibrator than the other, it, it seems almost unheard of. They, it's something that people can't actually grasp. It's it's almost a dehumanising process. You you can't believe that they're outside what they wear, the burqa or what they think um so i think that that shocked people that there was this identity outside something that they never thought of before like i said that they enjoy sex that they can have sex whenever they want and if they want to go and find halal free lube they will which sort of sections of society do you think feel most sort of threatened by this by the idea of Muslim women having sex yes. that's a really good question <laughs> that's a very you know what it was a sprinkling i had people that were educated at the london school of economics coming at me and then I had your general Islamophobes. So I wouldn't actually pick a particular community. I'd say a wide spectrum of pretty shocked. And they just don't want to accept Muslim women have agency because this is what we've been, that's what we've kind of been brainwashed into thinking. From the Muslim community, within the Muslim community as well? I think there is this taboo that still exists within the Muslim community when it comes to sex. So you can't win in any corner, I feel, at points. So there, there is a tension sometimes between what the community is saying and what the outside mainstream commenting online society is saying and those two things and kind of being caught. I think one of the essays in the book talks about being caught between a rock and a hard place yeah. between these two different yeah. opinions. Absolutely. I mean, if you've seen Muslim Twitter, one Muslim might have a completely different opinion to another Muslim and then you've got mainstream Britain having this what idea that we're quite a monolith with this one body of people that think exactly the same and so there are points where you feel like well might not think like that might not think like that I'm kind of an island sometimes there's a there's a tension within your essay um between you know wanting to put yourself on the line but also being justifiably sort of scared of potential reaction against that and there's a, there's a point when um, you go and do a, a piece for Sky News and the makeup artist before you go on camera uh, congratulates you for being so brave um, and you say you don't like that word. Why don't you like that word? I think that idea of brave is very much assigned to women that a lot of wider Britain might think are marginalised or are vulnerable. 
but maybe there's a difference between not liking having to be brave uh, or actually being brave. I mean, I, you know, if you are under threat, you know, you talk about having, you know, being frightened of somebody putting a St. George's Cross flag through your yeah. letterbox or following you home. You know, you started changing the times you come home, you stop listening to music on your way home in case yeah. you're being followed. Mm. You know, that certainly requires certain courage. Thank no? you, yeah. Um, it's such an interesting point because I remember during that time I was, I would I would say I was terrified actually. I was writing a lot of what, see, for the time, quite provocative things on missing women and social issues and the far right as well. And there were points where I was like, am I going to be followed? Am I going to be targeted? Um, and were you ever followed? No, thank God. I used to switch up my times anyway so that, <laughs> that wouldn't happen. Um but I, I definitely think there was a tension between. I feel like a lot with kind of journalism, you have to put yourself out there. You've got to share your work. I mean, you've got to build a name for yourself, as it were. But on the flip side, I feel like safety is something that I take that is so paramount and of paramount importance to me. And I wasn't going to be prepared to to actually jeopardise that. Two, three years on, you've said you say it towards the end that you've sort of retreated to the margins of yeah a bit. Um, are you are you happy with that? That's really interesting because one of my friends said that I was a coward at the oh, end wow. when he read it, and I thought that was a really interesting take because I hadn't thought of it like that. Because think, you've changed the kind of journalism you do, or yeah, I don't do so much on faith anymore. It's not because I'm f- because I'm scared. It's because I I was getting. I mean, there's a section in the essay where an interviewee accused me of having a Muslim agenda. One of the things I told him was that I've done so much. I've done so much journalism on food, social issues, even fashion. But it's faith that people keep clinging on to. It's quite it's quite tough thinking that people might think, oh, I've retreated. But actually, I, I do journalism because I love writing. I love kind of meeting people and sharing. Like, if they've done something amazing, I love sharing that to the world. And I'm doing my job. Is there a pressure? I mean... If you were talking to the other authors in this of this um, collection of essays, is there a pressure to write about the experience of being a Muslim woman because that's what you are and because it's not heard much in the, the mainstream media? And is that ever kind of a frustration? I got into journalism because I personally was fed up of hearing uh, voices that didn't reflect mine. And a lot of my work's been centred on my lived experiences but other Muslim women's lived experiences but also communities of colour. But... This was all a choice that I made because I find this area interesting. I find faith interesting. I find communities of colour interesting. And I feel like there's so many multiplicities with each community that the mainstream media simply does not recognise them. And that's a huge part of why I got into journalism. But I feel like with a lot of editors that you might work with, you can get typecast almost. You can get pigeonholed. So people of colour writers are only commissioned to write things on the immigrant experience or people of colour or trauma or ancestral trauma and things like that and then if a news story comes out about Muslim women then I'll, hit, I'll get an email from an editor being like do you want to write about this and that's that's where it becomes a bit more difficult because you may be the only Muslim journalist that they know or the only Muslim journalist that they've worked with so they're like oh Sam will do it because she is Muslim and that's where I think the final it starts becoming quite a fine line in that sense I think for women of colour or Muslim journalists that might be starting out in journalism that they might feel that that is the only thing they're expected to write. There's a line in your piece, journalism has the power to build bridges between communities in the face of hate and hysteria. Is that, do you think, the part of the aim of this collection and your essay in particular? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, if it can fall into the hands of someone who has no idea what Islam is, who's kind of grown up on a diet of right-wing media, then they might read this and they might think, oh, wow, this is this is completely different to what I thought. And it can fall into so many hands, and that's what's so incredible about this collection. So absolutely, yeah. Near the very end of your essay, you pose a question which you don't quite answer. Have we really accepted Muslim women or have we embraced the acceptable face of modern Islam? What do you think? To to a certain extent, uh, we accept kind of fashion bloggers or kind of high-profile Muslim women like Dina Tokyo, but do we accept, say, a conservative 40-year-old woman who might also be black? Would she have the same platform that's the thing about the Muslim community. There's so many different shades between it. So the book, your, the book is a bestseller already. How do you gauge the reception so far? Well, personally, I can't go through my Twitter without seeing so many different images of the book and people saying things about it, which is great. And if you go on the hashtag, it's not about the burqa, you'll see so many people from all sections of society from all over Britain just talking about it. So that's amazing. There's so many voices that do deserve to be seen, that do deserve to be heard. I think Maram's done a great job of bringing so many amazing women and bringing them to light and all their various experiences. So I think that's a celebration and worthy of celebration in itself. Salma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. It's been great. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. On our next episode, I'll speak to the author of the viral short story Cat Person, Kristen Rupenian. We'd love to hear from you on the podcast. If you have someone from the world of arts and culture you'd like us to talk to. Or if there's an issue that you think we should discuss, please get in touch. You can find us on Facebook or email us at everythingelseft.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We've been Grizzanal. Everything else is produced by David Waters. And our music is composed by Fatim. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires.
Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.